my daughter is currently pulling all the books off my bookshelf, so I gotta make this one quick. Yes, you are. Thanks. Uh, Joe Lumon. Today we speak with Joe Lumon, who is a popular uh, content creator on social media for progressive Christians. And she talks a lot about decolonizing theology and decolonizing Christianity. So it was a really fun, interesting conversation that Chris and I had with Joe. But before we get rolling, I just wanted to remind everyone that we have a new podcast. I personally have a new podcast called Mass Struggle. It's for organizers, activists, um, intellectuals who want to put their work uh, to service of the people. And yeah, so if you're interested in organizing or revolutionary communism or learning more about Marxism, Leninism, Maoism, then check out Mass Struggle. Find it wherever you do. And if you want to continue to support this show, thanks to everyone who sends a link to a friend, leaves iTunes or Spotify ratings and reviews, or contributes a few bucks a month, uh, either a one-time contribution through PayPal or a few bucks a month at Patreon. Okay, my friends, uh, here's our conversation with Joe Luman on deconstruction or decolonization. Enjoy. Okay, well, let's get to it. We got uh, a few really cool questions uh, that we're going to all be bouncing off each other and and offering some different perspectives. But generally, this is a, a really fun conversation I'm looking forward to. Joe, uh, I've seen you, you have a lot of work that you're putting out and you're really engaging decolonizing Christianity, uh, perhaps decolonizing theology, decolonizing faith. Is that correct? Yes, that is correct. Sweet. Yeah. Well, Chris and I, I mean, we're all about that as well. And we're also, you know, we talk a lot about colonialism and capitalism and imperialism on our show. So when I saw that you are uh, really focusing a lot of your work and your energy around decolonizing Christianity in particular, I thought this would be just a really great uh, conversation to have together. So it's um, it's gonna be fun, and we, we might as well go ahead and dive in. So the first first question, I think I actually came across it from some of your previous work, Joe, that you've done. Is this question of decolonization or deconstruction, and why? Deconstruction is probably a, a major and primary concern amongst most of our progressive Christian friends and communities, but I think that this question of decolonization or deconstruction, which one's perhaps more important and why, is really interesting. So let's go ahead and dive in. Joe, do you want to start us off? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I didn't even know what deconstruction was for a long time. I then started finding people talking about deconstruction later uh, on my own journey. But I don't think that deconstruction and decolonizing are separate things. I think that or, or it's not one or the other. Instead, I believe it's one and the other. Um, and I even add a third D, uh, which is dismantling. And there is this, you know, deconstruction is this important journey of asking questions to be able to bring something that you are trying to understand to the most basic level, uh, to be able to just take it apart so that you can say, oh, okay, this is what it is. I can understand it. And even if you think about it with a, with a machine, deconstructing a machine is literally taking it all apart so that you can understand each one of its parts. And then, you know, you can put it together or you don't have to put it together, but it's this journey of taking things apart to understand them better and if we're talking about faith then it's deconstructing your faith why do i believe what i believe where are these beliefs coming from are they mine or were they given to me by you know 
my parents or society or whatever. And so that journey is an important journey to go into. And decolonizing is a, is a different kind of thing that we all have to do. And it is taking away colonial uh, powers and colonization then we have to talk about what colonization is, right? Uh, which is the settling of uh, colonial power, uh, especially we're talking about land here, but it can apply to uh, ways of thinking, to ways of behaving, to societal structures. And so it's settling uh, co colonial, colonially settling into uh, an indigenous land or into an indigenous people and demanding that they adopt your ways of being and telling them that this is now your land. And so that happens with Christianity too. And that happens with faith in general too. There are all of these different colonial ideologies and colonial powers that have told us that the only way to have a relationship with the divine, be it, you know, the, the Christian God or other gods is in these ways, that the only way to do it is in these ways. And that is the connection that Christian, specifically Christianity has with systems of oppression, white supremacy, capitalism, patriarchy, uh, and Christianity has been used as a colonial power in order to push uh, colonial ideologies and colonial systems of oppression. So when we're talking about decolonizing, we're talking about what are the ways in which Christianity has been used to uh, as a weapon of oppression to push these ideas and these narratives. And dismantling is just taking them apart. Mm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love that connection between deconstruction and decolonization. And deconstruction, I, I, I had not heard of decolonization up until just a couple of years ago when I <clears throat> first started to study uh, anti-colonial and Marxist theory in general, which kind of went hand in hand together. But deconstruction was for me for a long time about rethinking what I think, uh, like what the Bible is or how I understand God or how I understand Jesus or myself in the world. And then paired with my, you know, my journey of, of deconstructing my, my more right wing um, fundamentalism that I grew up with towards a more, I would call, you know, a, a more liberal or progressive Christianity. Um, the one, the deconstruction part was really focused on Again, just like beliefs and ideas, um, perspectives, uh, theological perspectives, uh, transforming their meaning. But I was also going through a political journey as well. And uh, along the same at the at the same time, I was starting to think about um, what race is. You know, what does it mean to be white? Uh, what what is America? You know, how how does it relate to the rest of the world? Does it mean to be male and, and, and cisgendered and, and all these things? And so it was kind of like two different things, two separate processes happening, but they were pretty inseparable. Until then, I, I really started to um, study what colonialism actually is. And, and you, you had mentioned about how colonialism is about land, and, and, and we would also say, you know, natural resources, right. including human labor power. And there are different kinds of colonialism, right? There's settler colonialism. That's what we, that's what, uh, we have in the United States. I'm a settler. Chris is a settler. And we are uh, a part of a, a settler nation that's literally coloni colonizing the lands uh, of other nations, but also the, the labor power of other nations internally as well. But then there's, you know, there's the old school colonialism where you wouldn't actually try and have a settler population. You would just 
um, try and have a, a, a small army that could colonize an entire nation or or region a region of nations and you wouldn't really try and set up a, a settler nation uh, a settler population there but it is just purely about extraction and then there's a there's a, of course semi or neo-colonialism as well and that's you know the great example I, I like to go through with that right now is is the philippines the entire philippine economy is subordinated to uh, U.S. economic and political interests. Now, China is a is a great contester right now along the sea, but currently, in in for the last uh, almost century, it has remained under U.S. imperial uh, imperial uh, control. So it's been a, a neo colony or a semi colony of the United States. So yeah, there's different kinds of colonialism, uh, but that that is explicitly political, um, right. and, and I think decolonization has to first really take seriously the material relations and second the ideas the beliefs the culture i, I think both are really really important kind of like the the realm of culture the realm of, of of beliefs and conceptions and values and 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 even like god talk and theology but colonization and decolonization is first and foremost about material realities land water um, human labor power, uh, natural resources and such. Yeah, I think that it also, I mean, absolutely, all of those things are true. And then I think that it is also the, um, when we talk about decolonizing, we're talking about the effects of colonialism too. We're talking about all of the effects of colonization. So I tell people often, you cannot decolonize if you've not been colonized. Um, you can't decolonize those things for which you've not felt the colonial power over you uh, because it's not necessarily for, you know, I have indigenous ancestors. I'm Colombian. I was born and raised in Colombia. Some of my ancestors are indigenous and obviously some of my ancestors are Spanish. Um, but there are all of these aspects of returning to my roots, of unearthing all of these things that were taken away from us. And that is also a process of decolonizing, this process of reclaiming that which was taken, not just the material reality, though, of course, there is that part. And that is a little bit more complex because it's been 500 years. Um, and, you know, for some other people, it's been longer. But it's also the reclaiming of who we are who were we outside of these colonial powers who were we outside of this colonial control so decolonizing is also that journey of going back to who were we and that's when re decolonizing religion then starts making a lot of sense decolonizing theology starts making a lot of sense because in the west in particular christian hegemony has told us or hegemony depending on where you are and how you say it but um, has told us all that Christianity is the right religion, the only right religion, the only true religion. And decolonizing is making room for the reality that that is not accurate, that there are other ways of engaging divinity, that there have been other religions, and that they are just as valid as Christianity. And if it weren't for colonial powers, we would have them still. And we would even have books about them and narratives about them, but they were all destroyed. So there is this also reclaiming that happens inside of decolonizing that. Ha I mean, it can be, again, material reclaiming, which is happening. You know, we're talking about land back. We're talking about ending like ending police power is about that, too. Talking about military power is about that, too. But beyond that, we're also talking about ideologies. And um, that's why all of these things are connected, you know, talking about LGBTQ people, talking about capitalism, talking about uh, patriarchy, 
all of those or economic systems in general and political systems, all of that, we can decolonize from all of that because they were not the ways of our ancestors at all. So I'm seeing this connection between hearing both of your responses to this question. Joe, you had a really helpful insight about um, about deconstruction. I liked how you, how you talked about it as taking the thing apart to see how it works, to see what it's made of and see if you want to put it back together or not, if it's worth right. putting back together. So I deconstructed, but it's interesting that that deconstruction in my, you know, in my white, largely white seminary in my progressive Christian circle didn't lead to decolonization. That came much later. And it seems like when you talk about deconstruction and dismantling, you are coupling it with this decolonization question. And I think that's one of the ways in which our kind of discourse on deconstruction that happens a lot in the West seems to fall short because it doesn't lead people to material political struggle. It doesn't, doesn't lead people to actually decolonize, even if we might find our ways to, to that kind of language. And maybe we um, use different words in our worship service, but the same people still own the stuff, right. uh, still control the economy and whatever. Um, and the other thing I think of when we use the word deconstruction is I go to the the academic discipline of deconstruction right. that also is, you know, majority Euro and and doesn't seem to have a legacy of like being politically effective or of actually decolonizing much of anything. They're um, they're separate. They're separate things. So I appreciate how both of you have sort of like push these things together, um, deconstruction and decolonization. Yeah, I think they are in, I mean, because my journey was the opposite, right? I started decolonizing first and then people were talking about deconstruction and I was like, oh yeah, I've been doing that. Uh, but it was decolonizing for me. It was a uh, healing for me. I, I, and that's the other thing. The reason why I believe decolonizing is a spiritual journey uh, is because it was a spiritual journey for me. It was about healing my spiritual relationship with myself and with the like the things around me, with my religion. Um, so yeah, they are they are to me they are intrinsically connected. Just because that was my journey too. Like it started as a decolonizing, and then people were talking about deconstruction. I'm like, yeah, totally. They are together. Yeah, yeah. I think for me, I I think there is a there is an interrelatedness. For example. I can't come to the conclusion that the United States is a settler colony, that we have a ruling class that's just crushing our working class here, um, but primarily the the working class or the proletariat of of, of the rest of the world. Um, I really I, I I just don't think you know we can come to that conclusion and be like Jesus is the only way. The Bible is like the literal word of God, right? Those those very very fundamentalist perceptions of the Bible, Jesus, God, and such. Uh, so, so I do think there's some kind of interrelation, uh, interrelatedness, but and Joe, this is interesting because, it, particularly as a white person, you know, my faith journey and political journey thus far has been first people tend to deconstruct the the or or journey in their faith away from fundamentalism, um, and then maybe not everyone. But some people start to ask political questions, start to uh, think about, wait, actually, I do have this embedded political ideology, this this set of assumptions about what is and, and what isn't in the world, what should and what shouldn't be in the world. 
in terms of uh, of class, race, gender, sexuality, right? Uh, who should own the means of the ability to basically like drone the hell out of another nation, right? And, and America says we should, right? We are we're the moral country. We're the leaders in in everything. Praise God. Praise God. Thank but you know. It, all, of, all of that. Where does that come from? Exactly. Yeah. So so I do think there there is a there's a distinct difference, and one is consciously political, um, and, and not just kind of any kind of political ideology, but it decolonization assumes a materialist analysis. We're saying, no, there, there's a particular nation, and this is the body of a nation, and it has a historical relation to these other nations. Um, and, you know, in particular, you know, we're using the example of the United States because that's where we are right now. But there's a real material history, not just like this made up like perception of, well, you know, like white people and, and indigenous people, we just relate to each other uh, in, in, in some mythical way now. No, there's like a real material history. And, and these are indigenous lands. And the you know bulk of our production here in the U.S. is produced not by white working class labor, but by black and Latin and, and Asian uh, working class labor, while um, some white people are in the working class as well. So, so yeah, it's like a more, it's more materialist, I think, which is really important to me. And it's consciously political as opposed to, I think deconstruction without like political consciousness without, I would say, you know, more materialist or yeah, more materialist consciousness is, is really, it's, it's really actually not that important to me. Like whether someone says, no, the Bible is literally God's breath. Like God, had a big belch and it oh, came out with a God's holy word. Or someone's like, no, that's stupid. Um, the Bible was created by all these different people over the span of time and it's more complex. And, you know, we're not really for sure if there was an actual person named Abraham. You know, I've deconstructed all that stuff. Also, I support, you know, America's imperial wars or I think capitalism is awesome. Like, you know, like what people get is what they deserve. You know, you know what I'm saying? So people can deconstruct without that political transformation. And that's why I would say I really definitely think decolonization materially and of course, culturally as well is more important than deconstruction. Although they, they might have some kind of interrelatedness as well. Yeah. Well, um, I, I, I've been saying this for a while because I noticed a lot of people deconstructing, but not actually doing the work of decolonizing and you can deconstruct everything. You can deconstruct all the way to atheism if you want to. But if you're not decolonizing, you're just going to pick up a new weapon and continue to cause harm. Um, that's that's it. You're just going to pick up a new weapon because the ideologies of oppression are not unique to Christianity. Christianity is just a weapon that has been used by ideologies of oppression in order to push oppression on everybody else. And it's what I call predatory theology. It, they've been using this theology as a way to... Uh, convince people that oppression is good for them and for others. But if out, outside of Christianity, oppression still exists. That's why I argue that Christianity is not the problem. Religion is not the problem. The problem is oppression. The problem is the and, and oppression will use literally anything in order to continue to push its ideologies, including religion. But Christianity or religion in general can also be an incredible tool of liberation. And that's what it has been for marginalized peoples. So you can drop Christianity if you want to, or you can keep it. If you're not doing the work of decolonizing, you are, continue, you are going to continue to cause harm in many different ways. Yeah, very well said, yeah.
And just to make it, just you know, put some flesh on the bones. Like we all, we all know someone who came out the other side of of deconstruction to have really good answers about theology and be kind of, you know, a smug liberal who doesn't participate in the political liberation of anyone. And also some of the churches in my city that seem to be doing the most radical work are not churches that I would theologically align with. You know, God is he, um, the the Bible is infallible, things like that. And yet they they have a robust um, uh, prison reentry program or something, while my my uh, progressive liberal church has a hard time doing much of anything, you know? Um, it's, so it's interesting. Um, our political and our theological assertions don't necessarily always connect the ways in which, you know, you might think they would. Yeah. So it makes us, makes us question more complex. Yeah. And how, how do we know who's really deconstructed effectively and who's really decolonizing? Right. Anyway. I was having a conversation with someone because um, they were asking me, why are you still a Christian? Like knowing all the things that you know, because I've studied way too much history. And honestly, Christianity has been used as a weapon of oppression, as a weapon of terror. Like oh, since yeah. terrorist is appropriate. History. Oh, absolutely. Chris and I get that question all the time. Like, how yeah. could you be a Christian? You a Christian? I'm like, God, I got to answer this question again. <laughs> all right. And I explain it over and over again, but um, I was having a conversation with some Jewish friends and some Muslim friends. And for them, your religion is not something that you can pick up and drop. It's part of who you are. It's, it's part of your identity. And, and I was thinking about that, like, yeah, some aspects of Christianity, so many beautiful aspects of Christianity are just a part of me. They are embedded in who I am. They have been a part of my healing and my wholeness. They are a part of the relationship that I have with myself. They have, they are so woven through my history, through my own personal history, that I cannot just drop it. That is a colonial mindset. This idea that, oh, religion, I just, I just drop it and it's gone. Well, that means that it was never yours to begin with. And that sounds Calvinist, but I'm not talking about Calvinism. I'm talking about this reality that if it's so easy for you to drop it, perhaps it wasn't yours. And that's fine. That's absolutely fine. And I was talking to my Jewish friend and she said to me, because they are all convinced that I'm Jewish in inside, uh, which is probably true. Uh, but she said, if your soul belongs to Sinai, you will be at Sinai. And this idea that these these spiritualities, these religions are not some it's not an ideology that you align with, but instead is a part of where your soul belongs. It's a part of where your soul belongs. And for some people, their soul doesn't belong in Christianity and therefore they shouldn't be there. You know, you don't have to force your soul to belong to a place uh, that it shouldn't be at. But you cannot get to those conclusions without getting without doing this spiritual work of saying, where does my soul belong? What does what feels right to me? What feels like it's nourishing for me? Because the spirituality is supposed to nourish, right? It's supposed to make you better. It's supposed to help you understand the human experience. And so if it doesn't nourish you, let it go. But it doesn't mean that those who don't let it go are less than or are not doing the work or because I get a lot of atheists that are like, oh, you're, you'll evolve into atheism. And I'm like, good luck with that. Uh, I've done way too much work to evolve into atheism. Like, there's no such thing as evolving into atheism. I just evolve into the most authentic version of myself, which continues to find herself inside of Christianity. I do. And so even thinking in decolonial ways about what does religion mean? Is it just a power that was pushed on you? Is it just a series of ideas or beliefs? 
Or is it a part of how you understand the world? Is it a part of your identity? Is it a part of who you are? And see, then the conversation of religion is very different. Uh, it's not it's not about like, oh, it's bad, so I drop it, or it's good, so I keep it. It's instead, this is a part of me, and so I fight for it. Well said. <laughs> right on. Do we want to move on to question number two? Yes. So there, our next question is, what do we mean that one by decolonizing Christianity. Chris, do you want to start us off? Uh, I could try. I, I struggle with the question. Um, I don't know how we decolonize Christianity without actually decolonizing. And for me as a Marxist, that involves um, a people's party and a, a people's struggle and eventually a revolutionary movement. And that will lead to a revolutionary, a decolonized Christianity. And that's part of what I'm coming to this from. So I, I struggle with thinking about how to decolonize Christianity um, before we've we've actually decolonized much of anything. I don't know if that's where we begin or not. But Joe, I like what you said in the last in the last question. You're talking about how uh, it's not a question of tactics necessarily. It's we are Christians and we're going to continue to do this because it's who we are. So we might as well think about the best the best way to be Christian, the best way to think Christian and practice Christian. Um, but as far as decolonizing, I don't know what that means apart from actually decolonizing and seizing land. And that's part of why I'm a Marxist. So, yeah, for me, decolonizing Christianity required uh, what people would call instead deconstruction, which was going back to where does Christianity come from? What would it look like? to know Christianity outside of power, without power, looking at it from the margins. Um, and so I learned a lot about Second Temple Judaism, and I learned a lot about if Jesus was a Jew, and a Jew that was an apocalyptic Jew in the middle of the first century inside of Second Temple Judaism, what did Jesus believe? Like, what were the beliefs of Second Temple Jews? How did they engage with the divine? Because see, inside of Christianity, we've been told that we know everything about Judaism. And I learned that we know nothing, nothing. And everything that we know is wrong, like terribly wrong. And so I started learning about what did this apocalyptic Jew, what does apocalyptic Judaism teach? What did it teach in the second, you know, during the Second Temple? And for people that don't know, the Second Temple Judaism is just what came after the First Temple was destroyed, before the Second Temple was destroyed. Uh, and so Second Temple Judaism doesn't even exist anymore. So you have to read about it. And it was learning about all of that and learning about how Christianity doesn't make sense if it's read or studied or understood from privilege. Um, Jesus was talking from the margins to the margins intentionally. And in all of the ways in which Jesus was privileged, he intentionally would move to the margins. He intentionally would resist power. Um, he would like he was not interested in power whatsoever. And so seeing the dynamics of this religion is about the marginalized. This religion is about uh, equality and it's about liberation. It's about ensuring that those people that have been oppressed by empires, in Jesus's case, the Roman Empire, in our case, I called this the United States, the empire, uh, but there are other empires for sure. 
So what does it look like to stand with people that are oppressed by the empires? And what does it look like to create a better world for them? Because that's what Christianity was all about. How can we create a better world? How can we survive this empire together? How can we do better together? And these reimagining of power and of structures and of relationships. And that changed my relationship with myself, with my children, with my husband, with church um, because the way in which Jesus related to others is so different than the ways that we relate to people today and here in this capitalistic, um, you know, very supremacist, like obsessed with supremacy culture. And then I had to start finding all of the ways that I was uh, complicit in oppression. We all are complicit in oppression, all of us. And so I started figuring out what is what is my complicity in oppression as a woman of color, as an immigrant in the United States, as a person who is on the lower tiers, economic lower tiers of society. Um, what does what where is my power and how can I use it to stand with the marginalized? And I realized that being a Christian alone is a it's a privilege. I am privileged in the United States because I am a Christian. And so you'll see me fighting with Christians so that they stop causing harm. And it's what Jesus did, right? He, you never see him fighting with Romans or Greek people about Greek theology or Roman theology. He fought with Jewish people. And, and by fight, I mean, he had arguments, you know, which is very common inside of Judaism. He was having arguments with Jewish people saying, how does this even make the world better? Why are you doing this? And so I do the same thing. So to me, decolonizing what was this journey of if, if I say that I'm a Christian and I follow this Jesus, who we say is the Christ, what does that mean? What did he believe? What did it look like from the things that we have from him and from the things that we have from Second Temple Judaism? What was the purpose? What was the goal of this faith that they had? And I started doing that and then forgetting all of the ways that white European men in power told me I needed to do my faith. Right. Because the faith that they gave me was a faith that was performed. You perform your faith by doing these 17 things. And if you're a woman, by the way, don't talk too much. And if you are a woman of color, by the way, don't do this and don't do that and don't do these other things, but also have a lot of children and never say no to your husband when he wants to have sex. And all of those ways in which they told me this is what it means to be a wife or to be a Christian were performances in order to be approved of by the elites, by the powerful, but not by a Jesus, not by the marginalized. The people that I need to look at me and say thank you and to feel safe in my presence are not the powerful, are the marginalized. And as a Christian, as a Christian pastor, I'm an ordained pastor, I was not safe for anybody. The moment I say You're, I'm a Christian pastor, a lot of people get LGBTQ people, you know, Jewish people, Muslim people, atheist people, people of color in general. They get really nervous in my presence. So what does it look like to actively be someone that makes the powerful deeply uncomfortable and makes the marginalized very comfortable in my presence, in my spaces? And that's what it meant to me to decolonize my Christianity, my personal Christianity. If if I wanted to be like Jesus, the marginalized were comfortable and were safe, not comfortable, but safe in Jesus's presence. And the powerful were deeply uncomfortable in his presence. Yeah, and Joe, um, at, at the beginning of, of what you just said, you know, you had mentioned that basically decolonization assumes and, and includes stripping our our theological analysis, our our, our understanding of of Christian history, but also uh, Judaism as well, right? Um, our the the roots of, of 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 our religion as well, and 
but stripping it from white analysis, from American analysis, um, from European analysis, which was historically dominant, you know, predominantly Christian. And and I think that is deeply connected to the historical reality that certain nations um, came to colonize other parts of the world, other nations. And so for me, like when I talk about like Christianity is colonized, I mean, like it's colonized in the sense that Christianity materially serves real colonial interests. Colonialism isn't something that just happened 500 years ago. Colonialism is something that is happening today. I am a colonizer. I'm a settler colonizer in the United States. Um, I'm also a, um, uh, I participate in neo-colonization, right, of other regions of the world, as I mentioned earlier. And I think that just the idea, colonialism or decolonizing, it's not its not a metaphor. Um, it, we're not just like throwing this out as, uh, as a catchphrase or, or a new genre for, for a bunch of people to, you know, to write a bunch of books on and, and have like a bunch of podcasts on, right? We're, we're not just trying to create random words that aren't connected to history. We're talking about real colon, colonization that persists today and that we're all, whether we like it or not, embedded in it. And so, um, Joe, you also, I think, mentioned earlier about how decolonization will mean different things, whether you're a colonizer or the colonized. I, I think you mentioned something like that. Um, and I think that's really important that for us here in the United States, you know, we are everyone. The, the masses are, are told to be blind to our colonial relations here. We're not a settler colony. You know, we're we're the greatest democracy that, that's ever existed. You know, you know, we're at we're at peace now with with uh, uh, like white people, black people, indigenous. I mean, let's just all go to church together, hold hands and sing, sing Kumbaya. Um, the land belongs to America and it's the land of the free, you know, okay. There's some bad edges to it, but we're really, we're really like really progressive. We had our first black president eight years ago. You know, we have a, um, um, a black female vice president now. I mean, we're literally just like the, the city on a hill. So colonialism doesn't exist right to the masses of Americans. And that's part of the reason why this call, you know, this, this conversation is so important, but I, that I think it's really interesting um, and really important for white Christians, white American Christians, as settler colonizers, to uh, engage decolonizing, you know, Christianity, but in in light of the historical colonialism, differently from say um, black churches will or indigenous churches will, right? Other other colonized communities who are who are predominantly say black latin asian correct um they will engage this question from a different angle because perhaps their christianity is actually keeping them from struggling against the colonizer right or uh, as a white dude my christianity has long served to a deny the reality of my participation in colonialism um and so yeah so i could talk all you know i could wax all day about theology and bart and tillich and all that stuff but um up until recently a couple years ago i didn't even know that colonialism existed right i thought it was a thing of the past we're all free capitalism capitalism's where like everyone gets to be free elon musk gets to um spend billions of dollars on a on a twitter platform and um my grandma spent you know decades of her life warming her house with an oven we're all equals (laughs) right absolutely 
<laughs> but you know what? Now that you mentioned that, you made me think of the different theology. Because see, when people think about Christianity, especially people that are um, very embedded in white expressions of Christianity, they don't realize that there are actual theologies that have existed for always that come from the margins. Um, so, and I'm talking about Christianity exclusively, but of course there is theologies outside of Christianity, but we have these theologies like liberation theology, which sure has issues. Everything has issues. It's fine. Uh, like we, I mentioned something, it doesn't mean that I am saying yes to everything that, uh, liberation theologians said, but a lot of the things that they said were beautiful. Liberation theology comes from, um, Latin America. And so you can look at liberation theology and you can look at black theology, you can look at womanist theology, you can look at mujerista theology, and recognize all of these different ways in which Christianity has been engaged from the margins, because it's very, very different to talk, like, this This dawned on me, I was still going to church, this was years ago, I was still going to church, and it was toward the end, I was pretty much done going, and we were, they were singing a song at church about slavery. And they were saying, it wasn't about slavery. It was about Jesus. And they were saying that they were slaves to Christ. And I was standing there in a room full of white people. And mm. I was like, they have no idea what being a slave means. They, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a theological conversation for them. Just a theological conversation about how, oh yeah, I'm a slave to Christ. But what does that even mean? They've never felt shackles around their wrists. Uh, you know, ideological uh, or literal shackles. When a black person is singing about being a slave, that feels different. That hits different. The, they are singing about their actual ancestors. Um, you know, when indigenous people are talking about being enslaved, they are they are having a different conversation. This is about their lived experience. And so even in that, a theology that comes from your lived experience a theology that is rooted in your absolute reality. I was having a conversation with my friend, Jamais the third, who is a trans man. And they were telling me my theology. I'm not, I'm not a religious person because I think it's so important for my family to accept me. Or I think it's so important for me to have all of these very important philosophical conversations over a coffee or, you know, a whiskey, whatever your theology allows. Um, but I, I, am a the, I am a theologian and I am a religious person because it saved my life. Because knowing that I am made in the image of the, of the divine as a trans man saved my literal life. It was important for me to find myself in the divine, for me to be able to survive systems of oppression that tell me that I don't get to exist. When you're talking about theology that comes from there, that comes from I crawled my way out of a literal hell and theology helped me crawl out of hell, you're having a very different conversation than someone that is like, you know what, we were sitting down and we were having a conversation and we thought, ah, yeah, original sin sounds like a great idea. That's different. So I, I mm -hmm. love theologies that are rooted in people's real lived experience. That's what I talk, when I talk about liberation, I'm sorry, when I talk about um, theology from the margins, that's what it is. It's, this helped me survive the literal hell that systems of oppression have created in my life. Not... This ensured that my family is still talking to me. Mm. Yeah, and Joe, historical materialism is basically like the Marxist conception of history. It's how we analyze, understand history, and helps us. It gives us um, a lens for how we think 
uh, societies can be transformed. First of all, how they actually like operate together and then what needs to happen to transform them. Um, and so the Marxist or the, you know, the Marxist Leninist Maoist or, or Maoists here perception is that material being and real relations, um, you know, concrete actual being that is more powerful, more determinative than the realm of our ideas. So a lot of people could think a lot of things, um, could have some good ideas, but our lived relations, uh, whether whether we're talking about class relations or colonial relations or um, gendered relations, just the, the material reality that we kind of move and live in and find our being, that is, a, it's a bit more powerful. It's a bit more influential than, say, just trying to think ourselves to another world. Uh, and Chris had mentioned at the very beginning of this um, this question around decolonizing uh, Christianity. Do you, I mean, do you think that like we really can decolonize Christianity when colonialism still persists? Or do you think that ultimately, you know, you know, maybe we can transform it a little bit and it it can serve a decolonial real struggle for, for the actual decolonization of the world. But ultimately the, the land and the labor power and the natural resources literally need decolonized. Um, Then, you know, religion, you know, all religions can be freed from serving colonial roles because we won't have colonizers. What do you think? Yeah. Oh, I agree with Chris. You can't talk about a decolonized faith. You cannot even talk about decolonized relationships, decolonized anything. You can talk about decolonized work uh, so long as colonial powers continue to exist. You know, people love to talk about how uh, I like to talk about sex workers because it makes people uncomfortable. Sorry, my light was right in my face and it was very bothersome. Um, <laughs> but people love to talk about sex workers and they're like, it's just immoral. It's just immoral. As though there is any moral work inside of capitalism. As though any of us are not participating in very immoral things by participating because we have to in capitalism. You know, I, I love chocolate, love chocolate. It's obsessive. It's not good. It's problematic. I need to work on that, but I don't care. Most of the chocolate that I buy, because it's the only chocolate that I can afford, is chocolate that was made by children who are being enslaved in Africa to ensure that we can get chocolate at cheaper prices and that some people like Nestle and all of these Mars and Hershey's can become absolute millionaires. So even in my buying of chocolate, I am participating in oppression. So yeah, there is no decolonizing until we have um, decolonized our, our society, until we have, we're living in a decolonized society. And I believe that religion, because see, I don't like this idea that religion is just this like Sunday thing. It's what we were talking about, this performance thing. But religion should move you to action. Your your faith, your belief system should move you to action. And what is that action that is moving you toward? Is it moving you toward more oppression, more supremacy? Because see, the belief that Christianity is the best religion and everybody should be a Christian is no different than believing that white people are better than others and everybody should behave like white people. It's the same ideology, just with a different supremacy, right? And so what does it look like for our religion to move us toward decolonizing, to move us toward ending oppression? Um, Because for too many people, the religion, for too many Christians, let me be more specific, for too many Christians, the religion is about how can we ensure that people make it to this heaven that they don't even believe in? And so long as you're concerned about making it to a heaven once you die or ensuring that people make it to this heaven once they die and not creating heaven here and now, 
then you are you don't care about heaven here and now. You don't care that this is a hell. You can wash your hands and say, well, we live in a sinful world. As though Jesus even did that, as though Jesus didn't do something different, um, as though the pe people are not living in actual. Im imagine that. Like the, I thought about this one day. I was thinking about my ancestors. I was thinking about all of the ways in which they were brutalized and murdered, uh, all of the ways in which Christian people mistreated them and they had to leave hell on earth there is all these stories of indigenous women that stood up to them and they were treated in horrible ways sexually assaulted murdered horrible things and they according to christian theology they will end up in hell after a hell here now after a life in hell here knowing that their children were going to be enslaved mistreated murdered after that hell here Christian theology says, but they didn't say Jesus three times and clap their toes or their, their ankles. Is that what she did? Whatever. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> mm -hmm. You can say Jesus three times, so they are going to end up in hell too. But us, the people that actually murder them, we're going to be in heaven. I imagine the, the, the cognitive dissonance of that, right? So yeah. what is our faith onto? Is it onto creating heaven here or now? Because see, I cannot control what happens after I die, but I can absolutely control what happens here and now. And if my faith is not moving me toward ending colonization of all types, physical and literal and ideological, then it is aiding colonization. It is aiding it in some way. I want to point out something that I've heard from both of you in this question that I think is pretty interesting. When I heard the question, what do we mean by decolonizing Christianity? My mind went to, how do we transform Christianity? But instead, it seems like both of you are like, what the hell do you mean? Go over there. That's over there on the margins is where Christianity is is not bound to this colonial way of life. Mm -hmm. And that's an interesting, interesting thing to think. I'm a pastor of a very white church uh, in a fairly wealthy part of town. And whenever I hear, how do I decolonize Christianity? I'm thinking about for my church. And from hearing you talk, my mind went to the story in the Gospels of the rich young man who comes to Jesus and says, how can I be saved? I keep the commandments. I uh, keep the Sabbath. And Jesus says, great. Now just sell everything and give it to the poor and come follow me. And the guy walks away, which is tantamount to saying, well, you have to die. And then you can try this. Um, maybe there is no decolonizing for certain groups. Maybe th this is the struggle I'm having with decolonizing Christianity. I wonder if some churches, some uh, some communities are so bound up in uh, the the bourgeois way of of living in the world, the colonial way, that they're not going to decolonize. It's not a it's not something that we can even hope for. Um, but decolonizing Christianity prior to actual decolonization perhaps can can and does happen in the margins where people are actually fighting back and have you know felt the pain of of neocolonization and uh, like my friends in Sri Lanka right now who who can't afford the basic goods in their life um, because of the inflation of prices um, those are people who can think about decolonizing Christianity so it's kind of a sobering thought for me but I think maybe it's right anyway yeah. I mean, you made me think of what does it look like for Christians who have privilege? So I'm talking to, you know, white 
men. I'm talking to you. <laughs> what does it look like to pick up your cross? Because that was the invitation that Jesus was making to this man, right? What is your cross? What does it look like to pick up your cross? Because I don't believe that picking up your cross was a was as metaphorical as we like it to be. As you know, like this, pick up your cross. Maybe you struggle with homosexuality, and that's your cross. No, that's not that's not what Jesus was talking about. I believe that Jesus was talking about there are ways in which you are privileged in the world. There are ways in which you hold power in the world. And in order to ensure that marginalized people are better than they are right now in your presence, you're going to have to lose some of that power. You're going to have to give it away for the purpose of ensuring that the marginalized are better. What does that mean for you? And that's why you can't make it prescriptive. That's why you can't make a formula out of it. Because what it means for you and what it means for me is very, very different, right? What it means for me is often fighting with Christians about their anti-Semitism and their, all of these you know, things that that are so horrible. Uh, and that is what it means for me. But what it means for somebody in like a black person, a black trans woman is going to be rather different because of the amount of power that this person has in the world. And what it means for a white man is also going to look very different. For a lot of white men, it means what does it look like to offer? It's amazing to me how I am treated when I walk into a room and I'm not introduced as opposed to how I am treated when a white man introduces me. It's 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 vastly different, like right. vastly different. Because the white man told all of these people, just because in our psyche, in our implicit biases, in our brain, white men are smart and powerful, but women that look like me are not. So when a white man says, I need you to listen to her, they do. They do. And sometimes that's what, it, that's what it looks like. So as a Christian, sometimes I say, you know what? I listened to this Jewish person and they were brilliant and I want you to listen to them. And people do. It's very different than if a Jewish person came and said, I need you to listen to me. A lot of Christians would be like, nope, we don't want to. Right. Because we have all of these implicit biases. So what does it look like? You know, I have education. I have a master's degree. So people think that the things that I have, some people think that the things that I have to say about theology are important because I have a master's degree, because these white uh, space told me that gave me a paper and said, you are now officially a theologian. Uh, and so that that's power, even though we're all theologians, we all, all of us, every single one of us is a theologian. And so what is it to me, then it means I have to consider the ways in which I have power in the world. And what does it look like to pick up my cross? It means to divest from that power intentionally uh, without putting my life at risk, or maybe sometimes even putting my life at risk. I mean, the man was crucified, right? Um, so what does it look like? to divest from power to ensure that the marginalized have a different life. And that's a question that each one of us has to sit with and grapple with, because if you're a person in your 30s making $100,000 with no children, that looks very different than it looks for me with four babies and you know making $50,000 a year. Yeah. Those are two different conversations. <clears throat> Absolutely. And um, I think this conversation around carrying your cross, picking up your cross, is a great segue into our next question. Um, but before we get there, you both mentioned, you know, implicit bias and unconsciousness. And and just to really kind of hone this in, transforming ideas in, in our perceptions is really hard because of the 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 kinds of relationships that we are in. This is this is a more materialist analysis. And a really good example, I think, uh, a clear example might be you know, a landlord going to a landlord who is who is a landlord by their relationship, right? 
they have a relationship with tenants, right? So so it's a real relationship that that someone is being formed in day in and day out, taking that rent money month after month after month. And so it's going to be really, really hard for the landlord to come to a place to see like, whoa, wait, this is actually really fucked up. This is really, really unjust. And, I, and, and I've been taking all this profit um, every single month, month after month, year after year, and I've been actually reinvesting it in more land, buying up more land, displacing more people, and more people are becoming dependent upon me. And I'm just like jacking up the – right? it's, really gro- it's really gross uh, when, when you can see it. But when you're in a position, when you're materially in a, in a situation, it's going to be hard to come to a – a perspective that says, uh, wow, Christianity needs to be decolonized, and that assumes the actual decolonization of the world, right? The, you know, the United States can no longer persist, right? Because there is no United States after it's done being a settler colony. It was founded as a settler colony, um, as, a, as a mass enslaver. It will forever be um, a, a, a brutal just tyrant in the world. You know, uh, King called it the... Greatest purveyor of violence, or which yes, one? greatest that purveyor one? of violence. Yeah, yeah. I was stuck on terror in my head. I was like, no, that's not it. Yeah. So all that to say is, our material positions really do help reproduce our perspectives and and our are embedded, even if we're not conscious of them. I might not think of myself as a as a participant in just mass slaughter or a benefactor of it, but historically I am, and I, I think understanding our material positions. Whether you're talking about a class position in the United States or how your colonial uh, situation, right, race um, or gender and sexuality, all these things, um, even uh, are smaller or minority religions that uh, are greatly oppressed by the dominant Christian uh, Christianity here, all these factors play into the likelihood of whether someone will or not. It doesn't guarantee, um, but the likelihood of someone's ability to see the structural violence and the solution to that structural violence. So if we could, let's go ahead and move on. Um, y'all were, Joe, you were talking about the the necessity of carrying the cross, which I think that really speaks to question three. Mm-hmm. What has to happen? I'm going to read it. What has to happen for Christianity to be decolonized? What's our strategy for achieving, for achieving that goal? Yeah, because we don't want to just talk about it tonight. You know, we don't want to just talk about decolonizing Christianity. This is not an individualist, like, badge of honor. You know, I'm not interested in being known as a decolonial Christian. You know what I'm saying? That that doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how you individually identify, like, uh, if you're saying, I'm a decolonial person and I'm a radical. That doesn't matter. We're actually trying to transform the world. You know, Christianity, especially our politics, um, you know, whether you're, you know, whether you're a communist or socialist or, or anyone just kind of committed to fundamental transformation in the world. It's, it's about real transformation, not my individual, uh, how people remember me. So, right. so yeah, that, I think that's a great question. What has to happen for Christianity to be decolonized? What's the strategy? Well, I can go first and, and lay my cards on the table while you all are thinking. So I've already sort of answered this question prematurely. I think the only way that Christianity can become decolonized is through material decolonial movements. And I think we see this. I mean, when you think about what groups in the world have the most um, authentic witness to Christ right now, I think of Christians in the Philippines who are currently in a revolutionary struggle against uh, semi-colonial conditions, against um, their own 
bourgeoisie uh, against the United States. Uh, it produces a kind of Christianity that is other than what we practice here by and large. And, you know, uh, black liberation theology, Latin American liberation theology were both, I can say, helpful for Chase and I as we were um, coming out of seminary and, and trying to grasp onto something that was both faithful and politically robust. I mean, James Cone is probably one of the primary reasons why, I, why I'm still a Christian. And yet, James Cone has been rejected by even the black church, by and large, by all church in the West. It's read by seminary students, but, you know, that's probably about it. Um, the trans theologies are not mainstream theologies in our churches. Um, they, the decolonizing streams of Christianity arise out of, uh, out of suffering and out of struggle. So I think what has to happen is people who are suffering have to create a movement of struggle. And out of that, people who are committed to theology and Christian faith because of who they are, as we've talked about, will produce a Christianity that is decolonial. Yeah, and if I can just piggyback on that, because you know my answer I think would be pretty similar to Chris's. Um, and then Joe, I, I really want to hear what you have to say. Uh, but I would say, yeah, mass struggle in general. You know, I I want to throw out that if, if you want if you want the church to be transformed, you're talking about transforming Christians, people who identify as Christ followers, practice it, um, embody it, think it, wrestle with it, all that stuff, right? So if you, because if you transform the community, then you've transformed the religion, I would say, in that present context. So I think Christians in, you know, large sections of the church in general need to be participating in organized struggles, um, struggles against some of the main enemies in our local communities right now, bosses, landlords, lenders, cops, school boards, uh, private security firms, um, you know, or maybe larger things like the next American war or the next murder of a black child down the street or the next attack of a woman on a college or high school campus. Um, these kinds of organized struggles where we don't just like talk about or tweet about or Instagram stories share about how we are against racism or sexism and stuff, but we're, we actually need people to get off their asses and to be organized in real, like pretty militant in, in, in direct and confrontational, very risky uh, protests or sit-ins or definitely strikes, right? Strikes. Um, we, we've seen a couple of strikes happen in the United States this year where they've lasted like a month, you know, these, and, and sometimes actually some of the bosses have still won out. So, so these are really, really big strikes and, and, or big efforts I could think about decolonizing Christianity and, and becoming decolonial up in my head, but I, I think it's going to take a process for me personally, um, but also for my church community that I'm a part of, and then also the larger uh, community. Or if we're talking about like white settlers who are Christians, or uh, if we're talking about black or indigenous, right? I think Christians in general, from our different positions within society, need to be organized and actually fighting again. We, you know, we, we don't really fight very much. We have Netflix. Um, some people are at home drinking a lot of like craft beer. Um, other people are just scrolling through TikTok. That is not how we are transformed spiritually. That's not how we transform the world materially. Your boss wants you to just be sitting at home, scrolling through TikTok, binging Netflix all the time. I'm not saying those things are, aren't bad, you know, once in a while, but, but if we're not fighting, 
then we will continue our habits, our practices, our daily and weekly rituals and routines where we just go to work, we come home and we we binge eat and we binge drink and we just kind of fill ourselves with consumption of, of self-pleasure and, and kind of uh, and whatever that is. That stuff is going to reproduce a colonizing Christianity as opposed to a Christianity that serves the end of colonialism, that serves the colonized people against the colonized nations, which I think, um, especially as a worker here in the United States, you know, I think we have every, um, even if you are like myself or like Chris, a settler colonizer, if you're a white dude listening to this podcast, you know, we have everything at stake for the end of colonialism because um, we, we can't end, we can't address some of the fundamental problems that even that even harm a lot of like working class white dudes or even some petty bourgeois folks that are just feeling increasing levels of of material burden, but also just like the psychological damage that capitalism is wreaking havoc across all classes and racialized groups and uh, gendered groups. So I think we have common struggles that we need to be organized in. And these material struggles can really aid, all right, I spent all week on the picket line or I spent all week um, uh, feeding people on the picket line. And now I'm going to go to church and I'm going to ask, what does God have to say about what I did all week, right? That is the kind of practice that I think can really fundamentally transform the church, even though it's not really always about going to church. You know, being at church isn't the only way to transform Christianity. I think the the most powerful means of transforming the church is actually going to happen out on the streets against the bosses, maybe face to face with armed fascists or police officers. Yeah. So that, yeah. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. That's, that's what I'd say. But yeah. We need yeah. cultural transformation, but we need like material, actual uh, transformation as well. And that's going to come through organized efforts. Um, Joe, what do you think? Yeah. I think that um, in order for Christianity to be decolonized, we have to move uh, move to the margins. And that's that's both literally and ideologically. We have to move to the margins. We have to look toward the margins. We have to let marginalized people lead us in, like you're talking about organizing, who's doing the organizing. It has to be led by people in the margins. I'm not, I'm, I'm not talking about one group in the margins. I'm talking about a coalition of people in the margins, which includes poor white people uh, or working class, poor uh, working class white people. And so we look for the marginalized. We move toward the marginalized. We follow the marginalized. And in the ways in which I am not marginalized, I follow the marginalized. In the ways in which I am marginalized, I participate in the organizing too. Um, so we, we do both knowing our place. No, like people call it knowing your lane. Like what's what's my lane? You know, what's the lane that I can be in? And making the powerful uncomfortable. The goal of our organizing is to make the powerful so uncomfortable that they have to do something about it. We have to make them uncomfortable. We will not tolerate this and you're going to be uncomfortable. We will not tolerate over 40 hours of work. We will not tolerate not being paid adequately. We will not tolerate um, raising prices of all of these things. And if we do it together, if we do it together in a coalition, then they have to do something about it. Um, It's about finding oppression, right? Like the way that that you find the marginal is finding oppression but the first step before we move and look for the marginalized is to find oppression within us and the problem is that people too fat like too 
uh, eagerly in in a good way. It's a it's a it's a good thing that they are so eager to move toward the marginalized before ever finding oppression within them. And if you have not done been doing the work of finding oppression within you, when you move toward the marginalized, you're a weapon amongst them. You're harming them because of your implicit biases, because of all of the ways in which you have not dismantled the beliefs that you have about them. Because when you see their organizing, your brain is going to tell you they are doing it wrong because it doesn't look like the ways in which you've been told organizing should look like. And so the, the, the first the first thing that we have to do is making a commitment to fighting oppression everywhere we find it, but starting within us. Because you're going to find oppression within you. You are. I, I found it. I find it every time. Um, you know, if you're a parent, how do you oppress your children? Because children are the largest marginalized group in the world. So how do you oppress your children? How do you oppress children? How do you think about children? What do you think about them? Are they a nuisance to you? Uh, you know, how do you feel about women? How do you feel about black people? How do you feel about fat people? How do you feel about disabled people? Do your movements make room for all of these different people groups? Do you talk to them? Do you listen to them? Do you ensure that their voices are heard by you first because we cannot make sure that our movements are listening to the voices of the marginalized if we don't start by listening ourselves right who are the marginalized voices in different groups that you're listening to the the, the disabled activists that have been fighting this fight for a very long time and you're just coming as a as a newbie in this fight uh you can't center yourself so finding all of those ways in which you can uh, be, I hate the word ally, but you can actually link arms, see? And if you don't understand that the fight for liberation is not a fight to help people that are oppressed, but it's a fight where we link arms with people because we are actually all oppressed. Because we have, con we have, uh, not, what's the word that I'm looking for? Uh, confused. We have confused liberation with privilege. And we think that people that have privilege are liberated, when in reality, they just have more access to things that make them think that they are not oppressed. Because if you have money, you can appease the oppression of the world. If you have different, you know, if, you have, if you're a man, you don't have to think about all of the ways in which uh, patriarchy actually oppresses you too. Because it's more evident, it's more obvious when you look at trans people or when you look at non-binary people or when you look at women. But men are being oppressed by patriarchy. All of the ways in which patriarchy has told you all to behave, to be, to exist, that's oppression. The fact that you cannot be feminine, the fact that you cannot explore your feminine side, that your emotions are demonized, all of that is oppression. And so when you join the fight against patriarchy, you're not doing me a favor. It's not a favor that you do to women. It's not a favor that we do to non-binary people. It's a struggle that we join. It's a, I'm going to link up I'm going to link arms with you and I'm going to stop your oppression because it also stops mine. And understanding that that's the case for all oppression. Capitalism is the same. White supremacy is the same. White supremacy doesn't make white people better. In my opinion, it makes them uh, develop a lot of, this is going to sound really harsh and I hope that people can understand what I'm saying. It makes them develop a lot of different, um, what's the word? Uh, I mean, I'll say like, hey, yo, white, white people can be fucked up. So. No, they are. But there's <laughs> a specific word that I'm looking for. Uh, Anti-social personality disorders. You know, white supremacy makes the privileged amongst us, the most privileged amongst us, uh, which means white, wealthy, you know, uh, develop antisocial personality disorders. And, and look at it, you know, look at the history. 
white people quite literally would use black babies in order to and to lure crocodiles so that they could kill the crocodiles and sell the skin of the crocodiles they used black babies as bait these black babies died that is only done by sociopaths that's sociopathic behavior white supremacy is a mental disorder and i don't say that lightly i really don't um so find the ways in which you have been demanded to participate in oppression in which in which you have been told that don't worry this is not oppression because it privileges you and in reality you're not liberated at all you're also being used as a weapon you're being used as a as a peon of oppression and so uh how can we use our privilege for the purpose of liberating everyone including ourselves that's what my friend robin Dr. Robin Henderson Espinosa calls composting supremacy. It's not about just dismantling I hate white supremacy, but it's you know what? These different systems have given me a level of privilege that I can compost that I can use so that other people can be liberated and so that I can liberate myself too. And so how can we create a Christianity that is uh decolonized? Find find oppression everywhere look for the oppression inside of you look for the oppression in your cities and fight against it um including inside of you and stand with the marginalized because we're not fighting for them we're not helping them we're fighting together for heaven on earth we're doing this together yeah and i love your emphasis on on the the together part of the struggle as maoists we have this thing called the mass line which is basically our method of coming to what we would understand as like correct analyses correct ideas correct programs for developing a struggle because a struggle um that can defeat something like united states settler colonialism that's not going to happen in a day it's not going to happen in a week right that's a that's a struggle that needs developed over a period of time so we have this thing called the mass line but one of its principles uh its most basic is the masses and the masses alone are the makers of history. So, in an attempt to crush colonial Christianity and replace it with a Christianity after colonization, we I think all three of us absolutely agree that it is the the masses together um and the masses alone who will be able to transform both the world and Christianity itself. <laughs>